Look in 2 Kings chapter 6. The title of this lesson tonight is, If God Be For Us. If God Be For Us. What are the implications of God being for us? Look what it says in 2 Kings chapter 6 verse 1. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan and each of us get there a log and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, Go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe had fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. And the man of God said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, Take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. Verse 8, once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me... Who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. He was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots, was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us, notice that, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Interesting story, interesting couple of stories that uh, focus on the same theme, this idea of God being for us. We see here that God was for Elisha, and God was for the nation of Israel. Because of that, he protected them and watched over them and provided for them. And we see these realities surface in this text. As I was studying, it reminded me of, of Romans chapter 8. So turn to Romans chapter 8 with me in the New Testament. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Verse you've heard before. may not have known where it was found in the Bible. So you may want to mark it. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, Who can be against us? The answer, of course, it's a rhetorical question, but the answer is no one. If if God's for us, who can stand against God? The answer is what? No one. And and that's what we see happen in 2 Kings chapter 6. God is for some folks. And because he is for them, no one could stand against them. And so back in 2 Kings 6, we see three realities that I want to focus on with you about 
this story, these couple of stories that center around Elisha the prophet that help us to understand what it means that God is for us. Now, just kind of a quick review. Elisha was a prophet of God. Uh, He was a protege to another prophet named Elijah. And Elijah was thrust onto the national scene of Israel to preach God's truth to a corrupt king and his family and to the people of that nation. And he was used by God to do incredible things, to share powerful messages. But eventually God decided that it was time for leadership, prophetic leadership, to transition from Elijah to Elisha. And so in 2 Kings chapter 1, we see that God decided to take Elijah to heaven in a way different than he takes most people to heaven. He took him to heaven with a whirlwind of a whirlwind and a chariot of fire. That's pretty cool, right? Rich Mullins wrote a song years ago called, When I Leave, I Want to Go Out Like Elijah. That's how Elijah went out. He, a whirlwind, chariot of fire, God took him directly to heaven. He, he didn't, didn't even have to pass death. He, didn't, he, he, he went right past death, right into heaven. And so God blessed him with that. But Elisha, his protege, had been trained by Elijah, spent time with Elijah, and God anointed him with uh, his spirit, a double portion of the spirit that was on Elijah's life. And so Elisha picks up the mantle literally and figuratively and continues to serve as a prophet speaking truth to the nation. And God uses him to perform miracles, to get people's attention, and to uh, deliver penetrating, truthful, truth-filled messages. And so we've been studying Elijah's life and Elisha's life and that transition and all that it entails Uh, Most scholars believe, after they look at the details of Elijah's life and Elisha's life, that Elijah was more of a was more of a um, uh, fiery, um, fiery proclaimer, uh, tell it like it is kind of guy. Elisha seems to have more of a pastoral tone to his ministry, where he. He focuses on individuals and, and, and needs, and it seems to be a little bit, maybe a little bit more tender, a little bit more tender approach than Elijah. I'm not saying one is right or wrong, I'm just saying there seems to be a difference in their personalities as you look at how these stories play out. But Elisha was a, a, a courageous man of God, and God used him in wonderful, wonderful ways. And here's the main thing you need to know about Elisha God was with him. And if God is with him, who can stand against him? Nobody, all right? So. In this chapter, we see the reality of three things. Help us to understand what it means that God is with us or God is for us. Number one, we see God's concern. That's the first blank. God's concern. Now, in what ways do we see God's concern uh, in this chapter? Well, first of all, we see God's concern... For an individual. Look what it says there in verse 1. Verse 1. By the way, we'll have time for Q&A a little bit later. So if you have a question, just jot it down and we'll get to it as soon as we're through if we have time. Second Kings chapter 6 verse 1. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. The sons of the prophets were the, were the prophets in training. These were younger guys who were following Elijah and following Elisha and learning from them what it meant to be a prophet of God. And so they gather together for their classes, for their training. This is almost like a, an Old Testament version of seminary. All right, A bunch of guys getting together to learn what it means to serve God. But they were growing. God was adding to their numbers. So they said, we need a bigger place 
to do a, a bigger, uh, a bigger building, kind of like an expansion. We, they they need an expansion like we're having happen right here behind that big black wall. All right. So verse two. Let us go to the Jordan, each of us get there a log, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, go. Then one of them said, be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. That's just kind of an in indicator of Elisha's concern for these young preacher boys. Hey, we don't want to go by ourselves. You go with us. And this was probably not a task he had to be there for, but he said, I'll go with you. And Elisha goes there with these, these, these uh, prophets, these young prophets in training, to get more wood to build a, a bigger place. So he went with them, verse 4, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe had fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. An iron axe head was something that was not cheap in that day and time. And we know this young man was concerned because it was borrowed, and so it would cost him some money to replace it. Uh, and this caused him grief because it was expensive, and he probably had very little resources. Then the man of God said, where did it fall? Then he showed him the place. He cut off a stick and threw it in there, made the iron float, and he said, take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. So we see God perform a miracle through Elisha. Iron axe head sinks to the bottom of the Jordan River, and he throws a stick out there, and the iron axe head comes to the surface. And so some laws, some physical laws, some laws of physics had to be, had to be, uh, put on hold for that to happen. I mean, that, that doesn't happen in the, in the natural order. Some things had to, had to be suspended for that axe head to come to the surface. And God did that. He used Elisha, but God is the one who did that. And he does it for this young preacher boy, this young prophet, and we don't even know his name. All right? we, don't, we don't know who this guy is, but God performs a miracle for him. So what do we learn from that? We learn that God is concerned for individuals. Now, aren't you glad of that? I'm glad because, you know, I'm an, I'm an individual, and you are too. And God not only knows us, say, as a church family, He knows each of us by name. The Bible says He knows how many hairs are on our head. Psalm 56, it says that every tear that goes down our cheek, He catches it in a bottle. I mean, He knows everything about us. He knows our victories. He knows our triumphs. He knows our heartaches. He knows our hurts. He knows the crises we go through, he knows everything about us, and he cares. If you look there in your notes, the power of God was brought to bear on a relatively insignificant issue. The power of God was brought to bear on a relatively insignificant issue. I mean, in the big scheme of things, losing an axe head is, is, is not that big of a deal. It can ruin your day, should not ruin your life, right? Just like a you know, flat tire can ruin your day, shouldn't ruin your life. But, but, but these are things that are, 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 are troublesome, and it was troublesome to this, this young man. But in the big picture, the big scheme of things, a relatively insignificant issue. I, I, I begin to ask my, my kids when they're you know, concerned about something, is this going to matter in 10 years? Is this something that's going to be really important or that you remember 10 years from now to kind of give them a, a big picture perspective? A lot of things that, that cause us consternation are things that really aren't going to matter in 10 years. Things we're not even going to remember 10 years down the road, right? Insignificant issues. But yet God allows his power, his miraculous power, to be brought to bear on this insignificant issue. And here's why that's important. Look in your notes. Issues are not insignificant when we're the ones dealing with them, <laughs> right? I mean, it's one thing for us to look at this story through the 
corridors of history and say, no big deal. You know, iron axe head. Big deal, right? But in this day and time, to this young man, it was a big deal. It meant money, it meant debt, it meant not giving back what he had borrowed from someone, and it caused him great trouble, and God helped him out. In that moment in time, God showed himself mighty to help him with that issue. And that's good, because issues are not insignificant when we are the ones dealing with them. So it's comforting to know that what may seem insignificant to others attracts God's attention. Isn't that good? I got happy writing that sentence down. It's comforting to know that what may seem insignificant to others attracts God's attention. I mean, some of these other prophets probably didn't even look over their shoulder when this happened. They just kept chopping their trees. Uh-oh, too bad for old, you know, old Joe over there. He lost an axe head. I hate it for him. They just probably just kept chopping their tree. And yet the God of the universe shows this young prophet some attention and and accompanies that attention with power to make the axe head float again. Pretty awesome, isn't it? The God of the universe cares about this young prophet's axe head that had fallen to the bottom of the Jordan River. It's interesting to note that what others may look at in our life and scoff at and think, no big deal, God cares about. God cares about the big stuff in our life. God cares about the little stuff in our life. God cares about every aspect of our life. God is involved in every aspect of our life. Whether you feel that or experience that or or sense that or not, God is there. God cares. That's why the Bible says he knows how many hairs are on your head. If you are his child, if you are his child, you are his precious possession, and he cares about what's going on in your life. There's an old hymn that says this, No one ever cared for me like Jesus. There's no other friend so kind as he. Now let me ask you a question. Do you believe that? Do you believe, I know you know the right answer, but do you really believe that no one cares for you like Jesus? No one cares for you like Jesus. He loves you, he cares about every detail, every aspect of your life. And so when the axe head situation happens to you, maybe, based upon this, maybe it's okay to stop and ask God for some help. What do you think? Maybe the flat tire on the side of the road that's making you late for it, maybe it's okay to ask God for some assistance in that moment. Or, you know, the unexpected expense that comes into your life and you don't have the emergency fund built up yet and you have to buy, you know, a new tire or a new dishwasher or something and and it's a burden to your family and and it's difficult and and, and 10 years from now you may not even remember it but in that moment it's it's tough and and, and it's stealing your peace and, and your joy. Maybe it's okay to say, God, can you help here? Because he cares, right? He cares. Listen, we've got to get to the place in our spiritual journeys where we believe God cares for us. That we believe He loves us more than anybody else does. And He cares about issues in our life that other people think are insignificant. That's why Jesus said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. If you have a need in your life, ask. He wants us to ask. Even things that may not seem like that big of a deal to others. And so, we see here God's concern for an individual but secondly, we see, now we're going to go from you know, ground view to 30,000 feet. We see God's concern for a nation. God's concern for a nation. 
As we go to the next story in this narrative, we see the king of Syria decided to go to war with Israel. And we don't know why he does this. We don't give the details as to why he wants to go fight with the uh, king of Israel. But here's the problem. God gave Elisha insider information. And God would tell Elisha, okay, the king of Syria is about to attack the king of Israel over here in this town. So you need to warn the king of Israel. So Elisha would say, don't go to that town because the Syrians are about to attack you. And so the king of Syria would show up and there'd be nobody there. And he said, well, we'll get them when they're over here at this valley. And God would say to Elisha, hey, let your king know that, uh, that the king of Syria wants to engage you with his warriors in the valley over there, so don't go to the valley. So the king of Syria would show up. He had intelligence that the, the Israelites would be there. He shows up to fight. No one's there. And so the king of Syria comes to a logical conclusion. I've got a mole in my cabinet. Someone is a traitor. Someone is a spy. Someone is passing on to the Israelites my movements and my plans and my strategies. That's why I can't ever pin the king of Israel down. I can't ever fight them when I want to fight them. And his advisors say, wait a minute, king. Wait a minute. The problem is not that you have a traitor. The problem is that there's a man of God in Israel. His name's Elisha. And God just tells him everything that's going to happen. God's the one giving him this insider information. So the king of Syria says, well, okay, we got to kill Elisha. We'll go get him. And so look what happens in verse 11. Uh, verse 13. The king says, Go and see where he is, Elisha, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. That's not Dothan, Alabama. All right. That's uh, it's Dothan in, you know, Samaria-type area of uh, Palestine. The reason I say we go through Dothan, Alabama on our way to Florida, and there's a Dunkin' Donuts there. They're open all night long, and so we go through about 2 in the morning every time, and I stop and get coffee, and it's glorious. And sometimes a blueberry donut. But anyway, but this is not the same Dothan. But they said, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. This might be overkill, right? A great army to get one preacher, right? I mean, a great army to get this prophet. He says, a great army to get him. They surround the city, and it says, When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. The servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And so we see that God, we're going to talk about in a minute how God delivers them, but God delivers Elisha uh, and his servant from this Syrian army, and he, he blinds the Syrian army and, and basically puts them in Elisha's hands. So Elisha leads them to Samaria. Look what it says there at the end of verse 19. He led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men, the Syrians, the bad guys, that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. So they're led along blind. They open their eyes, and they're surrounded by the Israelite army. Looking pretty bad for the Syrians, right? And what happens next? As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? This is our chance to crush the Syrian king, to crush the Syrian threat, to crush the Syrian army. Elisha answered, I love this. You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away. 
and they went to their master. You know what Elisha does here? Elisha says we need to kill them with kindness. Don't kill them. God delivered them into our hands. Let's feed them. So they give them bread and water. They feed them. And how do the Syrians respond? Look what it says in the next verse, or the last part of verse 23. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Threat over? Who took care of it? Who took care of the threat? God did. God delivered Israel by by giving them inside information about the movements of the Syrian king, and then by blinding the Syrian army, and then by delivering them to Samaria in the midst of the Israelite army, and then by showing them kindness through the people of God, the Israelites, and then when they were shown that kindness, they were ashamed, and they said, we're not going to attack them anymore. And there's no more threat. God took care of it. So we see at the beginning of this chapter, God showing his great concern for an individual, and at the end of the chapter, we see God showing his great concern for a nation. Pretty cool, right? And and God is interested in both spheres, nations and individuals. Now, as we apply that to us, we've got to ask the question, well, is God concerned about our nation? Think God's concerned about what happens in the United States of America? I think he is. And I think he is because he tells us how to be a nation that's blessed. He gives us all the information we need to know how to be a blessed nation. For example, turn to Proverbs with me. Proverbs 14. Verse 34. Proverbs 14, verse 34. The Bible says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So God gives us all the information we need to know how to be a blessed nation, right? God exalts, raises up, blesses the nation that is focused on righteousness, truth, doing the right thing, uh, serving the right God. But when a nation turns their back on the one true God and allows sin to rule the day, then you can expect chaos and calamity and collapse, which I believe is exactly what's happening in America right now. I believe we're collapsing because we've turned our back to God. And that's just never going to go well. It doesn't go well when you turn your back to God as an individual. It doesn't go well when you turn your back to God as a family. It doesn't go well when you turn your back to God as a married couple. It doesn't go well when you turn your back to God... As a nation, it just never goes well. That's now not how it's meant to be. God says righteousness exalts the nation, so he cares about America. But he gives us the, the template, if you will, for how to be a nation blessed by him. Truth, righteousness, do the right thing. Right? That, that, that's, that's the template. And we can get into a variety of issues. Turn to Psalm 33 with me. Psalm 33. Psalm 33, verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom he has chosen as his his heritage. This is is a a reference, I believe, to the Jewish people, God's chosen people as he chosen to make his 
his name known to all the surrounding nations in the Old Testament, and he chose them to send a Messiah through them who would be a savior for people from every tribe and nation and tongue. Uh, But the principle applies to us. When a nation's God is the Lord, the one true God, there's blessing in that, right? There's blessing in that. And when we choose not to follow that one true God, there are consequences for that. And, And I believe we are... We are experiencing, we are living in uh, the consequences of turning our back to God. You know, this nation was blessed by God in remarkable ways. You know, our nation, in the big scheme of things, United States of America is not that old. You realize that? I mean, in the big picture, we're a very young nation. I mean, 1776, that wasn't that long ago. In, in the big scheme of thousands and thousands of years of, of human history. And yet, look how far God has brought us in a little over 200 years' time. It's incredible the way God is, the, the population, the, the resources, the impact, the way he's used us in, in other parts of the world. I mean, it's just incredible the way that God has blessed America. But we cannot expect to ignore God and move him out of every sphere of life in America and expect that blessing to continue on. It's just, just not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. It just violates Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. And so, we've got to lead the way as believers in Christ to live uh, the Christian life, to be salt and light, to point people to truth, to stand boldly for truth, to love people that are far from God so that we can love them and show them the truth so they'll, they'll listen to what we have to say. But we've got to be that salt and light in this society and we've got to stand courageously for the right thing. And we've got to tell our nation, God's concerned about America. He cares about America, but he's told us the, he's told us the rules. He's told us the kind of nation he blesses. And he's told us the kind of nation that he curses. I was reading in my quiet time this past week, the whole narrative of, of Sodom and Gomorrah and God destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. He rescued graciously Lot and his family from uh, the city of Sodom. But you read about the sin going on in that city, in that area, is exactly what is being championed in America today. Exactly. I mean, the exact same stuff is going on in America and, and, and being held up as, as, as good and right and true and noble and, and God destroyed a city for it. Right? Say, wait, what sin? Well, it was homosexuality. It was part of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And now we are, in our country, we are saying that, that it's okay to have marriage between a man and a man and a woman and a woman. Well, where'd that come from? God made Adam and who? Eve. And brought them together. Marriage is the union, the covenant union between one man and one woman. Woman, that is biblical marriage. Anything outside of that is a sin. And it's, a, it's an affront to God. There's forgiveness, there's restoration if you turn to Christ, but we've got to call sin, sin. And say as long as we're championing the values of Sodom and Gomorrah, we should not expect the blessing of God. It's just not going to happen, Right? But, I, but I, I believe God's concerned about America. I really do. I, as a matter of fact, I believe that God wants to send revival to America. What do you think? But you know the way he may do it? Take away our prosperity to make us dependent upon him again. 
Just food for thought. All right. I don't want to scare you. I'm just saying that just may be how God does it. 9-11 happened. Churches were full the next Sunday. Churches were full. 9-11, crisis, catastrophe. People came to church, special called prayer meetings. Churches were full the next week, back to normal. Business as usual. We really weren't that desperate for God, were we? We were desperate for about one week. And that was big stuff, right? 9-11. So we see in this chapter the reality of God's concern. Here's one of my favorite stories about God's concern for, for multitudes and for individuals. Remember the story in Luke chapter 1 of uh, Zacharias and his wife, uh, Elizabeth, Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. Remember, Zechariah was a priest and he was in the temple doing ministry there in the temple and an angel appeared to him, remember this, and he said, you're going to have a son, all right, you're going to name him John, he was going to be John the Baptist, and he's going to be the forerunner for the Christ. I'm about to send the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the redeemer, the rescuer, my son, I'm going to send him, and your son's going to prepare the way for him. Your son is going to say, hear ye, hear ye, the king is on the way. That is going to be your son's job. So he tells Zechariah and Elizabeth this. But here's the interesting detail. Zechariah and Elizabeth, to that point, were advancing years, were unable to have children. And so when John was born, a couple different things were happening. When John was born, God was setting things into motion to fulfill his plan of redemption. He was sending a forerunner so he could send a Messiah, so he could provide salvation for all the peoples on the face of the earth, right? I mean, that's big stuff. He was sending a Savior for humanity, right? That's, that's big, but God's concern for humanity. But yet, on that day when John was born, Zechariah and Elizabeth just knew the concern of God to give them a child that they had prayed for. So we see God's blessing for them individually, and God's blessing in the big picture. God cared about their individual situation. And so we see here God's concern on the small scale and God's concern on a large scale. But in this chapter, back in 2 Kings 6, we also see God's power. God's power. You know, if God were concerned but unable to do anything about our problems, we'd be in trouble, right? If he was just in heaven saying, boy, I really want to help out, but I, I can't. I, I can't help them out. I don't have the power I need, or I don't have the, the wisdom I need to do what they need. So I really want to help, but I, I can't help. Or if God was all-powerful, but he didn't care, we'd all be in trouble, right? So aren't you glad in God, our God, we have a God who cares, and he's able to do something about our needs. He's, you might say, he's willing and able. Isn't that good? And so we see in this chapter God's power. We see God's power over the created order. He suspends the laws of gravity and physics, and an axe head comes to the surface of the water. If you read the Bible even a little bit, you see that God created everything, and God has power over that created order. He uses it all the time. We see it in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. We see Jesus standing up on a boat in the middle of a great storm and saying, Peace be still, and the wind stops blowing and the waves die down. That's not a big deal. Next time there's a storm, uh, you walk out to a lake somewhere and say, Peace be still, and see what happens. 
Okay? It's a big deal. Big deal. Jesus had power over the creator. He was God on earth. And we see that here when the axe head surfacing. But we also see God's power over men. God's power over men. He, he blinds the Syrian army so that they are harmless. And Elisha, this prophet and the servant, are able to lead them into the, the mouth of the line, lead them into Samaria, surrounded by the Israelite army. They had complete power over them because God blinded them. God's absolute sovereign power over men. So we see in this text just a reminder of the power of God. Let me give you a, a theological word. You ready? The word is omnipotent, O-M-N-I-P-O-T-N-T, and it means that God is a God of all power. It means that any any power you can think of, God has that and more. He's greater than any power you can think of. He has all power at his disposal, and he uses it on behalf of his people. That's encouraging, isn't it? So listen to me. When God comes to the rescue... Rescue is going to happen, amen? When God comes to help, help is on the way, right? Because he has all power. But third in this chapter, we see God's concern, we see God's power, but then we see the reality of the unseen realm. Here's where it gets really interesting. This is one of the reasons I love 2 Kings chapter 6, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. We see the reality of the unseen realm. Look what happens. In verse 14, So he, the king of Syria, sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Elisha said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. At that, the servant probably was looking around going, uh, sorry, Elisha, I just don't see it. There's like, you know, a thousand of them, and there's two of us, and you're a preacher. I don't think this is going to turn out so well. And, and, the, and the servant's freaking out, rightly so. I mean, from a, a limited human perspective, it was not a fair fight. But look what happens next. Elisha prayed and said, Oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. Here's where it gets cool. You you looking? So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire. I love that detail. All around Elisha. And so the servant says to Elisha, we're outnumbered. And Elisha says, no, we're not. And the servant's thinking, Elisha, can't you see? And Elisha's saying, can't you see? And he prays, God, show my servant the realities of the unseen realm. And so God opens his eyes, and he's able to see that which had before been unseen but was real there. He saw the angelic army surrounding that valley. Now, a couple of, a couple of insights about this angelic army that he sees. First of all, uh, these, these are, are, are angels, it says there... Um, there with horses and chariots of fire. Now, horses and chariots are, are implements of war, right? You know, there's so many, so many um, interesting descriptions of angels in our society. 
You know, you, you, people collect angels or you see books about angels and a lot of times they're, you know, they're very perhaps feminine looking or, you know, they're playing harps, you know, or, you know, floating on a cloud or, you know, you know, have their little wings behind them, you know, and they're just kind of cute little delicate kind of creatures. Horses and chariots of fire. These are beings that are not to be trifled with. This is God's army on the scene. This is big stuff. This is, these are fierce warriors surrounding this valley. And I guess Elisha's servant got the, got the point because he didn't say anything else. He's like, oh, okay. I'm good. I'm good. And so we see the reality of the unseen realm. Now let's talk about the unseen realm for just a moment to kind of set it in a bigger context. Angels are unseen servants of God. Angels are unseen servants of God created by Him to worship Him and minister to His people. Angels are unseen servants of God created by Him to worship Him, minister to His people. Isaiah 6, you see, uh, as Isaiah is given this vision of the Lord seated on His throne, that there are these seraphim and, and, and cherubim surrounding the throne with six wings apiece, and they're circling the throne and they're crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory and there's unceasing worship in heaven given by these created angels. They are there worshiping God, uh, ascribing to Him the worth that is due His name. So they're worshipers, but they're also created by God to, to serve God's people. Turn to Hebrews in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, look in verse 14. The Bible says, look back in verse 13. He's comparing angels to to Christ and showing how Christ is superior to angels. He says in verse 13, To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And then he asks this question about angels. Are not they all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who who are to inherit salvation. And so he's clear through this rhetorical question that angels are are spirits created by God, beings created by God to serve those who are inheritors of salvation, those who are saved. And so here's what we learn from that. If you are saved, if, if you know Christ, if you've been born again, if your sins have been forgiven in Jesus Christ, by the way, he's the only way to have your sins forgiven. only way you're ever going to get to heaven is by embracing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, period. By trusting Him and not trusting yourself. Jesus died for your sins. He rose from the dead. The only way you can be saved is by trusting that what Jesus did for you will pay the penalty for your sins. And you trust Him and ask Him to do it, and He does it. Right? But if you know Christ, the Bible says God has created angels to minister to you. Now, I have no idea what that looks like in a, on a day-to-day basis. And the Bible leaves some ambiguity here. So if you have someone, you ever hear someone teaching about angels and they're giving you all this detailed information about what angels do, they may be coloring outside of biblical lines, all right? There's, there's some ambiguity here. We're not exactly sure what this looks like on a day-to-day basis, all right? But we can look at other places in Scripture to kind of figure out what this means. For example, Elisha's in trouble, surrounded by the Syrian army, and 
Who, who's there? Angels are there, right? They're there in that moment, ministering spirits. And so we don't know, do, do, do the angels protect us sometimes? Do they, do they somehow protect us even when we don't know it? Could that be how God uses angels? One of my favorite illustrations of, of this, and how I believe God may work uh, through his angels, is uh, when, when Caleb, my, my second son, when he was a uh, little guy, he was probably... Um, I don't know, two or three years old, and we, uh, or we, his grandparents had gotten in this little uh, John Deere electric tractor thing, you know, little electric uh, scooter. And so we're in our driveway, and he is driving that John Deere tractor, pedal to the metal. It's not going very fast. I'm walking beside him, and he's headed for the bumper of my truck, okay? And, I mean, he's headed there, and he has no clue. He's driving along, got the gas all the way down, and it would have been an ugly wreck if I would have let it happen. But you know what I did? I just kind of nudged it with my leg, just kind of nudged it a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. He just drove right on past my truck. He had no idea he was headed for trouble. He had no idea that I did anything for him. He just knew he was still driving the truck. You know, no problems. You think that might ever happen to us? Maybe some sort of danger. God's not ready to take us to heaven yet, right? And we may not, may not even know the dangers there. Perhaps, perhaps a ministering spirit, an angel, comes along, nudges us in another direction so that we miss the danger and God gives us more time on this earth. Could it be? I think it could be. I really do. They're ministering spirits. And, and they're there on behalf of God to carry out His plan, His will for our lives. That's pretty exciting. So I don't know what it looks like, but I know it's pretty cool. Okay? There's no indication that we have our own angel, by the way. Okay? That like God assigned to Wade, you know, the angel Jonathan. And Jonathan just follows me around all the time. He's my... The, the Bible doesn't say that. We've got to be careful not to say things the Bible uh, doesn't say. All right? We, I mean, maybe, but we don't know that for sure. But we do know that angels are ministering spirits and God uses them on behalf of those who have inherited salvation. But they're unseen. And so it's hard for us to, it's hard for us to really believe on a daily basis that angels are real. I mean, we, we are all say, do you believe in angels? We say, well, yeah, the Bible talks about angels. But, I mean, on a daily basis, to, to, to be aware of the, the presence of angels, it's hard for us to kind of get because we can't see those angels, right? They're unseen. But also, if you look there in your notes, angels are used by God to protect God's people. He does it for Elisha. Look in Psalm 34, verse 7. Psalm 34, verse 7. Cool verses here as well. Look what it says in Psalm 34, verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who what? Who fear him. So if you don't fear God, just a simple question. If you don't fear God, can you expect what this verse is talking about to be true in your life? No. But it says, if you fear God, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. That's a pretty cool thought, isn't it? That if you fear God, that God has some of his angelic hosts camping around you, surrounding you, just like he did with Elisha. And look what it says over in Psalm 91, verse 11. Psalm 91, 
Psalm 91, verse 11. I'm having you turn to those new ESVs a lot to get those pages unstuck, all right? <laughs> Psalm 91, verse 11. For he will command his what? Angels concerning who? You. To guard you in all your ways. And that is an incredible verse. I mean, think about that. God commands his angels to guard you in all your ways. Wow. And so we don't know what angels look like exactly, but we know they're, they're awesome, right? There's, they have horses and chariots of fire. They're awesome, awe-inspiring, created by God, and God commands them to, to, to work on our behalf. Pretty incredible stuff. And so angels are used by God to protect God's people. I like this quote from Matthew Henry, the old English preacher. Look what Matthew Henry says. When we are magnifying the causes of our fear. How many of you ever magnified the causes of your fear? You're, you, something's causing fear in your life, and, and all you can think about is, is that thing that's causing you fear, right? We focus on, on our fear instead of focusing on the one who can help us in the midst of our fear. So look what he says. When we are magnifying the causes of our fear, we ought to possess ourselves with clear and great and high thoughts of God and the invisible world. Because we know that God uses the invisible angels, the unseen angels, on our behalf. For our benefit, for our blessing. And so when you're fearful, don't just focus on the fear, focus on God and the way God works. And we know that God works through His angelic servants. But these angels that minister to God's people are not the only beings in the unseen realm. We need to understand this, okay? They're also demons. So wait, tell me about demons. What does the Bible teach us about demons? Look there in your notes. Demons are unseen, fallen angels that serve Satan. That's what a demon is. An unseen, fallen angel that serves Satan. Now there's a lot of verses that we could look at. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, those two verses I have for you, read them on your own time. They're long passages. But they start by talking about different earthly kings, king of Tyre, king of Babylon. And as they talk about these kings, it gets interesting because it's apparent that Ezekiel and Isaiah are talking about more than just this king. As a matter of fact, as they talk about the the pride of these earthly kings, they're using those kings as a symbol or a picture of, of a greater prideful being named Satan. And they use these kings as a starting place to talk about Satan and his pride and his desire to be like God and to rule as the highest in heaven. And they give us a little bit of background information about Satan. And then in Revelation, turn to Revelation with me. Revelation chapter 12, the unfolding narrative of Revelation. There's some symbolic information given to the Apostle John that helps him understand the background of Satan and his demons. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, the Bible says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant, was crying out in birth pains, the agony of giving birth. 
Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns on his heads, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them down the earth. Now, uh, scholars believe that that is a, a reference to Satan taking a third of the angelic host with him in rebellion against God. So when he was thrown out of heaven by God for rebelling against God, wanting the, the praise and glory that only goes to God, that, that some of the angels rebelled with him, a third of the angels, and they were thrown out of heaven with him. And now they're serving him in, on this earth trying to destroy. Okay? And it says there, The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, that she might, that, so, so that when she bore her child he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness where she had, has a place prepared by God, in which she is, is to be nourished for 1,260 days. I believe that speaks of Jesus, uh, the seed of the woman, who gives birth to the church of Jesus Christ, how God preserved them from the, the intention of Satan to destroy the church. But that's, that's, listen, this is, we can go months on this. But look in verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. These are the angels that are following Satan, the demons. But, this is good news, you ready? He was what? Defeated. There was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So that's some background. All right, There's a lot of stuff in here that's like, wow. Rocking my world. It ought to. Big stuff. But it gives us a little bit of the background about Satan. Satan rebelled against God, wanted to be like God, wanted the worship that only belonged to God. You can see some of that in Isaiah and Ezekiel, Job 41, where he's compared to Leviathan, the sea serpent. And there's this great cosmic conflict in heaven. I believe this is before creation ever happened. And Satan is thrown out of, uh, thrown out of heaven. God created the heavens and the earth. And now Satan is on the earth with his demons, uh, bringing about havoc, uh, trying to destroy, uh, trying to destroy um, God's people. And I said I, this before creation ever happened. This is before, I believe, Adam and Eve walked the earth. The angels are created beings. So he created them, he created the, the heavens and the earth, and at some point they rebelled against God, he threw them out of heaven to this earth because they lost the battle in heaven. So demons are unseen, fallen angels that serve Satan. They've already been defeated once, and they're going to be defeated again. Over in Revelation uh, next to last chapter, or two before the last chapter, chapter uh, 20, it says that Satan is thrown into the lake of fire, everlasting destruction. And so he, he, he's lost. He knows he's lost. But he's trying to wreak as much havoc as he can during his time upon this earth. And over in First Peter, the Bible says that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking those whom he can devour. So while he's on this earth, he wants to devour folks, right? He wants to destroy you. Listen, Satan hates you. He hates your marriage, he hates your kids, hates your grandkids, hates your church, hates your pastor. He wants to destroy. And so we've got to be aware, even though we don't see him, and we don't see the demonic realm, doesn't mean it's not just as real as you and I sit in this room. It's real, it's just unseen, just like angels. And so, who knows, let's just think for a minute, who knows What's going on in the unseen realm around Longview Point Baptist Church tonight? Can you imagine what's happening right now? Perhaps we have people here and under our 
roof in this room or in our youth room or in different Bible studies, children's area that are lost and far from God. And they're hearing the gospel. You know, they're hearing good news. They're hearing about Jesus Christ. They're being taught the Bible. And Satan and his demons are doing everything they can to keep people far from God. So perhaps there's some, some warfare going, some conflict. They're, they're trying to distract and, and trying to keep people away from, from hearing the gospel and understanding the gospel and responding to the gospel. And yet there are angels that encamp around those who fear God. There are, there are angels that minister to God's people here as well. I mean, what's going on in the unseen realm right now? I mean, if, if, if God would open our eyes to see, it would, it would blow our minds. Right? But just because we don't see it doesn't mean it's not really there. The unseen realm is just as real as the seen realm. It's just not seen. Right? I read a book when I was a teenager... It was the first book that really opened my eyes to this because I, you know, I grew up in Baptist church. We didn't talk a lot about demons or angels or much. We just kind of a standard deal. And I, I read a book by Frank Peretti. Anybody read a Frank Peretti book? He wrote one called This Present Darkness, and um, he wrote several. And, and again, I, I haven't read these books since I was a teenager, so I'm not recommending them or endorsing them, okay? Because I, I would need to reread them again to kind of before I do that. But he talks, they're fictional accounts, but he used those fictional accounts to to portray the reality of the unseen realm, to talk about the conflict going on between demons and angels and, and God's plans being carried out in people's lives and, and all the intricacies. And I don't remember the details. I just remember thinking, man, there's some stuff going on that I just would blow my mind if I could see it. And, and so God uses books in my life to, to remind me of the reality of the unseen realm. And this chapter, 2 Kings chapter 6, reminds us of the reality of the unseen realm. Now, what do we do with all this, Wade? Remember our original title. If God be for us. If God is for us, who can be against us, right? And we've seen here that God's a God of concern and compassion. He's a God of power. He uses his angels to surround those who fear him. So what does this mean for us on a day-by-day basis? How, how should this affect our lives? I'll give you two little sentences there that can serve as food for thought for you. Number one, we can rest. Everybody say rest. We can rest in the compassion and power of God. Look with me in Psalm 3. Psalm 3. The psalmists, man, they get this. What we're talking about tonight, the psalmists get this. And look what it says in Psalm 3 with me. Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom his son, so this is when David was in trouble. His son rebelled against him, tried to take over the kingdom, had a, a group of people that were following him, so David's life was in danger. He was fleeing for his life. And look what David says in verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him and God. Say law. In other words, David's saying, there are people saying, even God can't help David now. And look at the next verse. But you, O Lord, oh, I love this verse, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. How many of you ever needed your head lifted up? Life will weigh on you, won't it? Fear, anxiety, depression, crisis, conflict, 
enemies, man, it would just, just weigh on you. David said, when I am running for my life, I'm surrounded by danger. You, God, are a shield around me. You are my glory. You are the one that lifts my head up. Oh, I like that. Then he says, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. Now look what he says next. This is the part that just is astounding. Verse 5. I lay down and what? Slept. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Why is David not worried about thousands of people? Because he knows God is for him. And if God is for him, if God is his shield, and God is his glory, and God is the lifter of his head, who can be against him? What's it matter? Absalom's plans Absalom's rebellion. If God's in it, if God's going to stand for David, then it doesn't matter what Absalom does. David says, I can lay down and sleep. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you will strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Your blessing be on your people. On your people. Those that know him, God's people. Selah. Love that verse. That verse is a verse of rest. In the middle of chaos... In the middle of crisis, David's saying, I can lay down and sleep. I like what Charles Spurgeon says about God. He, he said that the, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, the idea that God's in control, is a soft pillow to lay your head on at night. Every time you lay down, you can go to sleep knowing that there's one who does not sleep. Who's in total control of the universe. Reigning on his throne. And he loves you more than you love yourself. And he has a plan for your life, and he wants what's best for your life, and he's working in your life, whether you sense that or not. And he even uses angels sometimes on your behalf. Now that's pretty cool, isn't it? That should give us rest. So we can rest in the compassion power. Again, if God were were we're willing but not able, we'd be in trouble. If God were able but not willing, we'd be in trouble. But because he's willing and able, we can rest. Turn to Psalm 27 with me very quickly. I'm, I'm about to close down. I'm getting excited. Look at Psalm 27. Here's David again. David just got this. Most of David's life, he was fighting enemies. Look what he says in, in chapter 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light, my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? He could rest in the compassion and power of God. And let me tell you one more thing. As we think about God being for us, we can have confidence when surrounded by enemies. We can rest in the compassion and power of God, and we can have confidence when surrounded by enemies. We're not going to read them all, but look back in Psalm 5 with me very quickly. Psalms 5, 6, and 7, which I've been reading in my quiet time, all deal with enemies, being surrounded by enemies. Look what he says in um, in Let's look in chapter 7. David again which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush a Benjamite, another enemy. 
O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I've done this, if there's wrong in my hands, if I've repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground. Let my glory in the dust. Sometimes we get in trouble because of our own foolish decisions. Right? And David's saying, I'm not calling you to rescue me from my own foolishness. If I've done something foolish, then I deserve your, I deserve your discipline to get me on the right path. But, look what he says in verse 8. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. In other words, David said, if I'm in the right here, if I'm doing the right thing, but I have enemies around me, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake from me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, uh, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. I like that verse. Great verse to pray over our nations. We think about, you know, the pro-choice agenda that, that we have millions of babies in mother's wombs who are being terminated. Devastating what's happening in our nation. What a great prayer to pray. Oh Lord, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. May you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts. Oh righteous God, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He's bent and readied his bow. And so he's thanking the Lord here for being a defender against him, a defender against his enemies. Listen to me. If you love Jesus and you follow him daily, you will get enemies. It's the truth of the Bible. The Bible says, Paul says over in 2 Timothy, he said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's pretty clear, isn't it? So if you're desiring godliness, if you're going to go against the grain of society and follow Jesus, you can expect enemies. It's going to come. But according to all we've talked about tonight, God being for us, angels, unseen realm, God's power, God's compassion, we can have confidence when surrounded by those enemies. Now listen to me. I believe this is going to become more real and applicable to the church in America. Because if the church is going to continue to follow Jesus and do the right thing and stand for the truth and preach that there's only one way to be saved through Jesus Christ and say things like marriage is between one man and one woman, that's what marriage is. If we, if we continue to stand for those sorts of things, the, the response, the, the backlash from society will get worse and worse and worse. It will. Worse and worse and worse. We see it in different uh, avenues and areas today. You're allowed to say anything you want to say as long as it's not based upon this book. And as long as it's not about an exclusive Jesus who saves, the only Jesus, the only one who does save. So we can expect enemies. We can expect, we can expect things to get more difficult in our nation as our nation goes in the wrong direction. So we've got to get this place where we say, God, you're for us. We don't have to fear. We just do the right thing and leave it all in God's hands. God will take care of us. He'll take care of the situation. God's plan, God's purposes will be accomplished. Listen to me. God has won. When Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, God won. The decisive power of Satan was broken. Satan's time is limited. He's going to be thrown in the lake of fire. He knows it. God's won. 
So we need to stand in confidence when surrounded by enemies.